This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have some incredible guests with us. Love when guests stop by London Live. Well, we are getting very close to Halloween. Is it okay that I don't have a pumpkin yet or candy? I'm not going to shut off the light. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be the old get-off-my-lawn guy. I will get candy. I will get a pumpkin. I'll find time to carve the pumpkin. But it may not be an orange pumpkin. I'm thinking I may go teal this year and get a certain type of thing to hand out because of the Teal Pumpkin Project. Joining us right now is Cassandra Whiteside and her daughter, Sienna. And they are here to tell us about the Teal Pumpkin Project. Cassandra, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having us again. It's nice to actually be in the studio this time to talk about it. Well, you're able to kind of illustrate what has happened over the last few years. How long have you been doing this? So we have been participating in the Teal Pumpkin Project for five years now. This was pretty much when Sienna realized that when she went to door to door with her food allergies, she would not be able to eat the the candy. And so when the kids start to figure that out, it's quite um, diminishing at that point. You don't feel great. You have to take it all away from them. You have to say no a lot. And we just wanted to make sure that uh, uh, Halloween was a safe time for her and fun as well. And Sienna, what is it that you're allergic to? I am allergic to peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, and I am sensitive to food dyes and artificial sugars. Man, you and me, red food dye? I can't eat that. I can't. And now you, you probably can't eat the red or, or any food dyes, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Well, that makes things awfully tough on Halloween. What was it like early on when you were able to go around, get that candy, but then I can't eat any of this stuff? It was really sad. One time we checked the wrapper of something and it said it was fine. um, And I ended up not feeling well for about half a month. No way. Half a month? Yeah. Yeah, really? it took a long recovery. It, it was it was not good. It was actually like well, maybe I shouldn't say the name of what the candy mm. was, but <laughs> it was uh, it was not good. So it took a long recovery for her. Usually that's the case for her, especially with the food dyes. So so if we see a teal pumpkin, yes, Cassandra, what does that mean? Sure. So what we're asking for the teal pumpkin project are uh, members of the community to either paint a pumpkin teal or put up one of their posters in their door. And what that st- says is that you'll provide non-food items, um, little toys trinkets, things that are non-food for kids who have food allergies so that they can still participate, they can still get out there and trick-or-treat, and they still feel safe and included at this time of the year. And there is a map that we can find right now. Where do we find the map? Sure. So it's the Food Allergy Research and Education website, which is foodallergy.org. And if you go on there and you put into their search um, engine the Teal Pumpkin Project map for 2019, there's an interactive map there that allows you to put in your address. And then we, what we do is on the night of Halloween, we map out all the houses that we're going to go to. And then we go and we say a big thank you as well to all those families for participating and making it easier on kids who have food allergies. We're talking with Cassandra Whiteside and her daughter Sienna about the Teal Pumpkin Project. Sienna, now that there are teal pumpkins out there, now that you can go around and get things that are actually useful to you, what's Halloween like for you? It's been a lot more fun because I now have that feeling that I'm going to actually get something. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Halloween's about! If somebody wanted to put their house on the map. Do they have to have a teal pumpkin as well, or can they just be virtually on the map? They can just virtually be on the map. Often we'll go up to the home and and they'll say, 
and or I'll say to them, um, here's Sienna, she's with the Teal Pumpkin Project. And that's sort of the precursor to let people know, oh, okay, so and the nice thing about the Teal Pumpkin Project is it actually has um, unintended uh, wonderful benefits as well for kids who are celiac and kids who are diabetic and have other health issues that can't also um, eat the candy on, on Halloween. So it's it's been helpful from that point of view too. Any suggestions yeah. as to what to bring? You mentioned little toys and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anything that tends to be a, a good thing to give out? Sure. Uh, stickers, um, little slinkies, uh, erasers, pencils, all in the sort of Halloween theme, little uh, toy cars, that kind of stuff is usually what pe- most people give out. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you to the two of you for coming in. Anything else we need to know? Just happy Halloween? Sure. Happy Halloween. And I want to say thank you, if I can, to the Old East Village. Uh, they have been really supportive of this initiative. And also to the London City Hall and the London Life Building as they will also be shining their light, their, their buildings in teal this year in honor of kids who have food allergies. So we really appreciate that as well. No way. The whole building. Yes. The whole building will be teal this year. Look at yes. how big this is yeah. becoming. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But well, we just want to help with other kids who have food allergies and make this a safe holiday for them too. Well, you can visit teal or sorry, you can visit foodallergy.org and look for the Teal Pumpkin Project and get that address registered. Be ready on Halloween with maybe a little bit extra so that... We have a whole lot of happy people trick-or-treating. Sienna, what are you going out as this year? I'm going out as an Egyptian princess. Amazing. An Egyptian princess. Mm-hmm. Now, from a parents have to put this costume together, how's this one rank? Pretty easy? Pretty easy, okay. actually, yes. Yeah, it seems to get easier as they get a little bit older, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with everything. Sienna, have a very happy Halloween. Thank you. Cassandra <laughs> Whiteside and Sienna in studio with us. We get an opportunity to talk with London Knights Assistant General Manager Rob Simpson. You'll be hearing this on Sports Today. If you are a London Knights fan, as I know Marilyn is, Marilyn, the Knights have a new player. It is not Luke Evangelista's brother or cousin. It's a guy by the name of Dylan Miskew, who is a goaltender who has come from the Western Hockey League. Now, in order to get to London from the Western Hockey League, a couple of things had to happen and a trade had to take place. So this becomes kind of a, a different move. Rob Simpson joins us right now, Associate General Manager with the London Knights. Rob, how unique a move really was this? Yeah, it's, it's quite unique, Subsy, just because we have a goalie, uh, Dylan Miskew, that was, you know, at the start of the year out in the WHL, he got waved through the WHL, and I think it was a little bit of circumstance with an overage and how unique that that position is to have an overage A goaltender, but only have so many cards overall. So to be able to, you know, get Dylan, who's, you know, he took the team to the semifinals last year and losing in seven games against the eventual champion, we're pretty happy about that. So he comes over from the Sarnia Sting. They had claimed him on waivers? Yeah, because of the way the waiver wire process works, as of October 15th, it reverts to the standings, who can select first all the way down to who can select last. So at that point, Sarnia you know, uh, was still in last place and, and hadn't won a game yet. And since then, they've turned their season around. But at that point, when the waiver wire went through, they were the first selecting team. And they decided, hey, goaltender, we'll, we'll select them. Yep, exactly, and take a chance. And, you know, obviously now they've, they've positioned that uh, to be able to get Jordan Coy and give up a pick. And, you know, we got the goalie that we were looking for 
um, through the waiver wire. So you get a conditional draft pick in this depending on how things go next year with whether Jordan Coy plays, or how does that one work out? Yeah, it's a third-round pick conditional uh, if uh, Jordan plays an overage season. Okay. And then tell us a little bit about Dylan Miskew. He obviously has a good resume, but what is he like as a goalie? Big guy, little guy, medium guy? Um, I would say, you know, he's he's not your big 6'4 goalie, but he's definitely a, a good-sized OHL goalie, 6'1". Uh, he fills space incredibly well, you know, from what we watched on video and the research we've done. Um, you know, he actually took that Edmonton team, and plenty of people say that, you know, last year – uh, they were a younger team, and to have the success that they had was a big part to Dill, Dylan's uh, play throughout the playoffs and the season. And anytime you can pick up a you know a 20 year old goalie with that amount of experience, it's just going to bring a certain level of confidence to your locker room. And I think from watching him on tape, I think he reads the play very well. Um, he's obviously be trained very well with his technique, and he's good along you know with his post play and crease movement and. You know, just as an older guy, he understands when to challenge and when maybe at times you you have to sag back in your space because of other threats. So I think he comes with a great hockey mind, and, and I think that shows in his play that he did out in Edmonton. Rob, thanks so much for the time. No problem, Stubbsy. Thanks a lot. London Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson. On the Knights' new goaltender, Dylan Miskew, to read more on that, you can go to 980cfpl.ca. The Knights will be taking on the Erie Otters on Friday, and we'll see whether Dylan Miskew makes his debut. The Knights will be in Oshawa on Sunday, and big thank you to Jordan Coy for all he did as a London Knight. Now he'll come back and play the Knights as a member of the Sarnia Sting. There's a line that goes like this. He who dies with the most toys wins. English professors like to throw it out there. Sociology professors like to use that in exams. What's that mean? He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, sometimes people will go into great lengths to describe all of the stuff that we accumulate in life. And some of that stuff is really valuable. Most of it is not. The valuable stuff we try and hang on to. And we just happen to have information right now about some of the stuff that you might have that could have some value. Maybe this was something given to you by a grandparent or a family member many years ago. Here's a baseball. It's signed by someone named Baby Ruth. I know I'm stealing that from the sandlot, but that could have happened. And you think, well, I think I'm going to hang on to this, put this in a nice, safe place. The Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum is going to be hosting appraisal events. We need to find out more about this. Best way to do it is to go to St. Mary's. Scott Crawford joins us, Executive Director of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Scott, how's the day going? It's going very well, Mike. How about yourself? Not too bad. Do you have one of those Baby Ruth baseballs? <laughs> Our museum has one. I, I don't have one personally, but I wish I did. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what you are going to be doing, because we're giving this a couple of weeks for people to find their stuff. This will take place two weeks from tomorrow and two weeks from Thursday, November 13th and 14th. What is happening? Yeah, well, first one of our first events we're going to host here in the new museum space is we're going to have heritage auctions come out of uh, out of the USA. They're coming up here to Canada, and they're going to uh, host an appraisal event for an, any sport item, not just baseball, but you could bring your favorite hockey or football thing up and and see what it might just be worth. 
So if we're to picture kind of like old antiques road show where somebody brings in an old clock and you have someone who knows old clocks looks at it and says, uh, you know, it's uh, whoa, wait a minute. It has this marking on the back. This means there were only five of them ever made. Congratulations. It's worth twenty thousand dollars. That kind of thing could happen? Yeah, you never know. It's, and that's what uh, these guys like to do. They, and they want to partner with the Hall of Fame. They don't get to Southern Ontario very often. And uh, they're going to check out what you bring up. And, and you never know. It might, be, uh, it might be worth hundreds or thousands. And uh, it'd be, it's always great to find out what you have in your house. Definitely. Okay, so from now until Wednesday, November the 13th, and Thursday, November 14th, we have an opportunity to go around the house and see what it is that we may still have. Are there any rules in terms of what we can bring? I mean, if, if you own a replica of Dodger Stadium, I wouldn't haul that in, but what other rules do we happen to have for this? Well, they, uh, the, the fellow who's coming up, his name's Tony, he specializes in game-worn jerseys and game-used equipment and autograph items and, and vintage sports cards. So that's sort of where we're heading. He's uh, any of the sports, you know, hockey, baseball, football, basketball, um, and uh, you also uh, it, it's ten dollars to get three items looked at, and and also gives you a tour to, of the museum while you're while you're here. Outstanding. Okay, so three items is that kind of the the limit? Pick your best three. No, you can, we'll bring. You can bring as many as you like. We're just suggesting, you know, three, and then uh, if you want to bring more, it's uh, a small fee more. But um, you know, it's just to keep the line moving and respecting a lot of people. So it's going to be a great time. Fantastic. We're talking with Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Wednesday, November thirteenth. Thursday, November fourteenth. They are having an appraisal. So grab your game worn jerseys. Grab your cards. Grab your autographed items, just like we were talking about. Dan has an Ernie Harwell signed ticket from the last game that Ernie Harwell ever did. I wonder how, that'd be a tough one to appraise, wouldn't it? It would be, but these guys are in the business, so they do for a living, so he, he should bring it on up, and uh, and uh, Tony will tell him all about it and what he thinks of it. Fantastic. Anything else we need to know about those two days? What are the times for them? Yeah, on the thir- on Wednesday, November 13th, it goes from 4 o'clock to 9 o'clock, so we can get sort of the after work and evening people, and then on uh, Thursday, November 14th, we're doing 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. to get the morning or midday people and um, all the information is right on our website at baseballhalloffame.ca baseballhalloffame.ca you can see the new area you can see the new look of the hall of fame and who knows you may walk away feeling uh, pretty good about an heirloom that's been in the closet or in the garage for a long long time scott thanks so much for the time today no problem great always talking with you take care and oh actually yeah. can can we bug you for a little thought on the world series is this thing over <laughs> Well, I'm always looking for Game 7. That's the most exciting thing in any sport. So uh, I'm pulling for Washington tonight, and then uh, I'll flip a coin for Game 7, as long as there's a Game 7. I cannot believe how it's gone. Washington goes home thinking, yeah, we, this, is, this is good. The fans ready to celebrate, and then all of a sudden you have to win two games or... It doesn't happen at all. Yeah, no, it's been a flip-flop World Series. You know, every all the home teams keep losing, and so that doesn't go uh, well for, for Houston the next two games. But they're both great teams with great pitching. I expect uh, Verlander and Strasburg to pitch amazing tonight and then, uh, and then on to a Game 7 tomorrow. And we'll see if Max Scherzer can pitch that because of his muscle spasm issues. So lots of baseball still to come, at least over the next night, maybe two nights. But then grab your baseball stuff, your other stuff, and get it to the Canadian Baseball. Hall of Fame and Museum, Wednesday, November 13th, and Thursday, November 14th. Scott, have an excellent afternoon. Perfect. You as well. Take care. That's Scott Crawford, Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Let's take a break, and then I want to go back to a couple of the other things that people have 
told us they have. If if you have a prized possession, shoot me an email. I'm not going to come and take it from your house. I'm not that. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. But if you've got something that you're thinking, yeah, I'm hanging on to this. I'm going to pass it on to my kids, and they're going to be really rich one day. They could pay their tuition with this. Just make sure it's not a Wayne Gretzky rookie card that you've written your phone number on at the age of six. All the numbers are right. Full body scan would be a great thing to have, or maybe you would hate it. Maybe you don't want to know. Let me live my life. If something's wrong, I don't want to be monitoring every day and worrying about every little tiny thing. But there are companies that do offer full body scans. So let's get a perspective on this from the health community in terms of very, very early diagnosis or things that you can do that you would think, yeah, I got, I got to get this done. But what exactly could that do? What could some of the other ramifications be? Joining us right now is Dr. Mario Alaya. Dr. Alaya, how are you? Good. Uh, good to hear from you again, Mike. Well, it's good to have you on the show because we're going to talk about something that I've always wanted. Okay, can can I set a scene for you? I want to be able to wake up in the morning. This is what I see a futuristic house being like. I wake up in the morning and I, I get myself out of bed, maybe after one snooze on the weekend, and I come around and I walk through my bedroom door. And as I do that, something goes boop. And it checks me over to make sure everything's okay. And I get a little readout on my phone or wherever it would pop up in the futuristic world that my brain is living in. And it would say, yeah, you're good to go. Or it might say, mm, got a little rhinovirus in your nose. Or maybe even worse, got something serious going on. You should call a doctor right now. The full body scan seems to be that futuristic dream. And, and it always sounds really good. You being in the medical profession see that this may be coming at some point. What do you think of full body scans? So your your dream is probably not an uncommon one, right? Where people want some sense of of um, comfort and knowing that uh, they are quote healthy, that there's nothing wrong with them, and if there's something going on, that they want to get some heads up and. Uh, Take 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 early intervention. Uh, this is not an uncommon kind of dream and 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 hope for people because you know we all have experiences either personal or with family where diseases have come up seemingly out of nowhere, right? A cancer scare where someone was diagnosed with 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 a cancer and within a few weeks they they'd passed or it was uncurable or developed a heart attack with no no sudden warning. So this idea of wanting to kind of find things early is not. Not an uncommon one, and, and certainly reasonable from the um, from uh, for the public to kind of look look to. Um, the issue arises, and and you, um, what prompted this is is uh, there was a tweet on- online of of uh, a Silicon Valley dude uh, promoting uh, full body some new full body scan that was available that was uh, he was pushing as being um, uh, to, to find cancer early and to find things that that could, be, uh, that could intervene. And as you saw in the replies, it was mainly medical professionals aghast and pushing back saying this is not actually a good idea because some of the numbers sorry if if you look at the numbers he had the number out of a thousand people scanned 44 will have cancer and said often in a treatable stage now this was a little bit of promotion on the internet it was actually like you say a tweet so why was there pushback from the medical community 
Absolutely. So what the, the issue that arises with any, with any kind of screening, so screening meaning looking for disease in someone who doesn't have symptoms. The issue with any kind of screening is we need to know going in um, what is the, we call it sensitivity and specificity. Those are the two words we use. So sensitivity meaning of people with disease, how many um, actually test positive for the test. And specificity, so how specific is it? How many people that, um, that the test comes back positive for is the disease actually there? So those two things are important because what happens often with full body scans, whether it be an MRI or a PET scan or a CT or even ultrasounds, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, the sensitivity is there, but they're not often very specific, meaning that we get a lot of false positives. Now, someone would argue, well, what's, what's the harm in a false positive? If it doesn't end up being anything, then, you know, who cares? I got tested and I feel better for it. But the issue is that there is, there is a real harm in false positives, not just in terms of the anxiety that's created, but in terms of the actual work. So, for instance, for people with an elevated uh, PSA, right, the prostate blood test that people get done, part of the workup in, 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 in uh, working up a, uh, a positive PSA is a prostate biopsy. And in some cases, a prostate biopsy can cause an infection, can actually cause a blood infection, and in some very rare cases actually end up in death. Now, it's not something that if someone's got symptoms of, of, uh, of certain disease and we need to do a full workup on that, we don't do a full workup. But it's, it's that idea that screening is screening people without symptoms is inherently harmless that we often push back on because we all have cases in our practice. And so I'm in family practice, so I've got 2,000 patients. And I've got cases in my own practice where we started down a cascade and someone who otherwise had no symptoms and one test needed a, a follow-up test, needed a follow-up test, needed a follow-up test. And in the end, in some cases actually caused, caused uh, real harm. And the problem is once you get that cascade going, it's very difficult um, to stop. So this is where before we do any test, whether it be a blood test, an image test, um, whatever, we need a good reason to be doing the test. Um, and, and we need good, out, uh, good trials done to show that that's actually beneficial. I'll give you one example. So in people who smoke, so people who, uh, who, who are between 55 and 75 years of age who smoke, there's actually been a trial done looking at whether CT scans reduce the risk, uh, so actually save lives in terms of finding lung cancer early. And it actually showed that there was a benefit, but in that very specific group, right, it didn't look at, you know, people between 0 and 100 scanning everybody and finding a whole bunch of stuff that we're not going to do anything about, but they, they, they looked at people between 55 and 85 who either smoke or used to smoke or quit within the last 15 years, so a very specific cohort and found that there was benefit. So for any screening test that's being promoted in, in asymptomatic, so people without symptoms, we need a, uh, trials proving that it works before we do it. Otherwise, we're just basing this on anecdotes, right? Some guy said they got a scan and he said it saved his life, and the other guy said he got a scan and he had a complication. Otherwise, we're just kind of flip-flopping back and forth. So that's why these trials are really, really critical. And the scan that we saw being promoted there on Twitter with the MRI really is way, way not even close to being, being ready for prime time in the sense that they need to prove that it actually saves lives before people waste their money on it and their time on it. We're talking with Dr. Mario Alaya, and we're talking about the full-body scan, which always sounds so great. Now, we're going to get into ultrasounds in a second, but even if we're talking CT scans, we're talking about using radiation, are we not? Is there any yeah. risk or, or you know, you, you couldn't go for a CT scan every month because, you know, that's that's yeah. going to kind of mix up Absolutely. some cells? Absolutely, yeah. So CTs uh, do carry radiation with them, and we know that kind of, cumulative radiation over time does increase the risk of, of, of cancer. Now, that being said, if your doctor has recommended a CT scan for a workup of a certain condition, 
um, we consider the radiation in that in that case to be um, you know minute enough to, to warrant that um, that test. Say, for instance, someone has a, a chronic cough that a chest X-ray is clear, and the doctor thinks you need a CT scan to work that up further. That's different, right? That's working right. for symptoms. But in my but futuristic that, door, walking through yeah. the door and getting zapped uh, with the the same kind of radiation, having my own CT scan every day, probably not a good guy that idea. Worry, that that would worry me. Now, what was pushed by, by again the tweet was MRI, which you know doesn't carry radiation, but but certainly the the CT you know getting regular CT scans uh, would 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 carry a risk. Okay. How about ultrasounds? Yeah. So I don't. So I'm sure most people in London who have gotten the free press at some point in their life uh, have seen the ads from just across the border. Um, there are small clinics um, in Port Huron, in Detroit, that that um, was uh, promoting ultrasound scanning to to people in our area to look for again early disease. The problem is that we talk about false positives. The false positive rate with ultrasound is through the roof because what 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 people are coming back with is spots on their liver, spots on their thyroid, spots on their adrenal gland. That you know they get a, they get a, a kind of a vague report saying you know uh, a lesion this size. Follow up with your doctor creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. The problem is the false positive rate is way too high. If we ultrasound everybody's thyroid, everybody's liver, everybody's adrenal gland, everybody's going to have. Or I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people are going to have a lot of spots that really are going to require workup because no one's going to feel comfortable just leaving things alone at that, and that's going to require biopsies. And So the reason we don't do that is we know that from the evidence that we have, doing ultrasound screening for those kind of things does not save lives. Now, that being said, there is one area where we actually do recommend ultrasound screening in people who don't have disease, and that's in men between 65 and 80 to look for an aneurysm in their belly, and women 65 to 80 who either smoked or had a, have a previous history of heart attack or stroke. They con- are considered high-risk groups for, um, for abdominal aneurysm, um, and they should be getting screening through their, uh, through their family doctor. So that can be something that, that people ask about next time they see their doc. But again, that's been looked at in a trial and found that that actually saved lives. Because if you don't know you have an aneurysm in your belly and a rupture, that's, that's bad news. So in those high-risk groups, it's been proven to be beneficial. But in everybody else for ultrasounds, for screening without any symptoms, no, no benefit. Dr. Elia, thank you so much for the conversation today. I'll wait for that futuristic world to arrive. But in the meantime, uh, you've added some great perspective. When it arrives, it'll be my first call, Mike, I promise. <laughs> Thanks so much. Dr. Mario Elia, on full-body scanners. And so that does add a little perspective where, and we've heard this before, there was a great discussion that happened this past summer at the Men's Health Breakfast. And some of that discussion, we even talked with Dr. Hassan Razvi on London Live, the idea that there are people who have prostate cancer. And one of the things they're looking at now is saying, yeah, you don't really need to treat this. You can you can have this. And how many times have you heard stories about people who will be diagnosed with something, but it's maybe later on in life, they've had it forever, and it isn't ultimately what ends their life. It's kind of strange that way to to hear discussion about that, but the medical community has seen things like this for a long time. So there are times when prostate cancer does not get operated on, and Dr. Rasby talked about that, and we even stopped him and said, just, just to say, let's get this straight. 
you have a cancer in your body, and yet perhaps the worst thing to do is risk complication by operating, and you will get to that scenario. And that prostate cancer may not even be what ends that person's life. So we're just lucky to have the healthcare professionals that we do. Can we can we give healthcare professionals a round of applause? Thank you. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.